So I had a, I had a running joke going with uh, Sarah probably the first, I don't know, five years we knew each other, uh, which was anytime there was an occasion of any sort that warranted some kind of greeting card or something like that, I would always buy whatever I thought was the least appropriate greeting card for the occasion. And I don't mean like offensive, like 18 plus rated R, but I mean, you know, if it was a birthday, I would buy her a retirement card. Or if it was Christmas, I would buy her my favorite grandma card or something like that. Or just the worst card I could possibly find. It, it became a joke knowing that if, if, I had given, if I had given her a sincere or normal card, she would have been disappointed. She was always excited about how bad the card was that I was going to get. It was a running joke we had. Uh, it helped me avoid uh, sincerity when I didn't feel like I could be vulnerable enough to provide it at the time. So we did this for a long time. And I liked the, I, I kind of like that, uh, the wrong thing for the wrong time kind of thing. That, that's just, it's just funny to me. Uh, and that, that came to a beautiful, a beautiful uh, culmination uh, one time when I was meeting her at her mother's house for her mother's birthday. And um, I had I'd known her mother. I'd gotten to know her a couple times. I'd been around a couple times. We didn't know each other real well yet. And I was driving from Athens to Atlanta. Uh, and she and Sarah said to me, I need you to stop by uh, the Publix, uh, which is uh, a beautiful place that we don't have here. Uh, uh, but I'm still praying. And, uh, and, and stop by the Publix. I haven't gotten a card yet. Will you get a card for us to my mother for her birthday? And I said, yes, I will do this. I will prove my merit. And so I was going for that last minute card. And I really was. I was going to behave myself. I was going to get a card that, you know, someone... Uh, would want to receive from their child and her boyfriend. And, uh, and as I was walking down the card aisle, uh, Sarah's mom, Sally, came walking up to me in the grocery store. It was like half a block from her house. And said, what are you doing here? And I said, not buying your birthday card at the last second. That's for sure. And so we laughed. And we, we laughed about it. And it was a good bonding moment for us. And then I saw a chance to further bond with, you know, who I hoped would maybe one day even be my mother-in-law. And I said, you know, it would be fun is if um, I bought an inappropriate card and I signed it and sealed it, and then when we give it to you, if you'll just act really offended, it's going to make Sarah feel terrible and awkward in that moment, and we'll see how long we can torture her. And she said, perfect. And, uh, and I, I think, I can't remember, I think it was like her 52nd birthday or something, so I bought a bereavement card, and then I put happy 60th birthday, you're almost done, or something like that, and then I signed both of our names to it and sealed it. And then I showed up, and, I, and we acted like we hadn't seen each other at the store. And then I showed up, and Sarah's like, where's the card? Can I sign? I said, I already took care of it. I already signed your name to it. I even wrote, like, in your handwriting. And she was like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, it's already sealed. We're good. She's going to love it, right? And then we all sat on the couch after, like, dinner and all this stuff, and I gave her the card. And Sally deserves an Academy Award for opening that card and looking at it. And I, I thought she was going to cry. I mean, she really brought the feeling of being deeply offended by your, your daughter's uh, boyfriend at the time. And then she angrily handed it to Sarah, and Sarah read it and just could not come up with a word as she looked frantically between the two of us, <laughs> didn't know what to do. It was amazing. We only tortured her for a few days, and then, uh, no, just a couple of minutes. But um, I, I love that kind of stuff. I love the awkwardness of that kind of juxtaposition. Uh, and that, that was the story I thought of when I read the text for this week. Because this, you know, we are, we're already putting up the tree in our house. There's already uh, some lights on it. Uh, not totally done yet, but we're getting there. And it's, we're already thinking about Christmas. 
and it seems weird and it's going to feel out of place to you that as we're putting up Christmas trees and all these things, today's text is going to be, the entire text is Jesus on a cross. And that just feels weird. Why would we be talking about Jesus on the cross when we're getting ready to talk about Jesus being born? What kind of weird, out-of-order way is this to go in to an Advent season? So just own the idea tonight that this is a weird text. This feels like getting a bereavement card on your birthday, right? Um, but this is a special day on the church calendar, and it, it kind of came later. It got plugged in later, hence a little bit of the awkwardness. But this, everywhere uh, you know, in the world right now, there are churches that are celebrating what is called Christ is King Sunday. And, and there's, it happens every year, Christ is King Sunday, and it's the Sunday when we stop everything, get out of the normal order of things and the, the direction that the gospel has been going. We step out of it and we remember the supremacy of Christ, right? We remember that idea. And I personally think it's worth stopping every year and reminding ourselves of this, because I actually think what we talk about tonight might be one of the most important things we can talk about. But just so you know, in tonight's scripture, there, there will be no a little drummer boy, uh, in part because he's not in Scripture at all. I'm sorry to tell you that. But um, also because we're not talking about the Christmas story yet. Um, but I do genuinely believe this is an important, important thing for us to remember. Uh, and I know that Christ is King is a little bit of a strange phrase for us. King does not exactly have a ton of resonance for us anymore. We don't really do kings and queens anymore. The ones we have are more symbolic and they wave in parades. Uh, they don't really have power in any meaningful way. But the essential claim of Christ is King Sunday is that all things are ordered under Jesus, that there is no power, no force, no thing more powerful than Christ or Christ's way. And as, as much as it's going to feel like this is the worst section of verses that you could use, I think they're perfect for demonstrating exactly that thing. And so what I want to, let's go ahead and look at it. We're in Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. And it says this, when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, ha were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. All right, so again, you might be like me and find this a strange scripture to use on a Sunday dedicated to Christ's power. Are we going to spend all of Christ is King Sunday on Jesus dying? It doesn't feel very kingly. To be honest, it would feel more natural, and I almost went this direction because it's one of my favorite scriptures. It feels more natural to go with the Colossians text that you heard earlier, which is the epistle for this week. 
Let's read that again just, just to listen, because this feels more like Christ is king kind of language to me. Uh, we'll start down in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that together, so that he might come, have come to have the first place in everything. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now that, that is some kingly stuff right there, right? I mean, that's a trump card for everything. Oh, you made that? Well, I made everything. Well, that was made for you? Well, everything was made for me. The fullness of God in human form, right? That is what we call high Christology and theology. That is a powerful resume. He rescued us from darkness the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, through him and for him all things created, before all things and holding them together, the fullness of God. That's some king stuff right there, right? I love those verses. And they feel more appropriate for Christ as King Sunday than Jesus hanging on a cross, breathing his last breaths. But of course, what I just read to you from Colossians leaves off the last phrase in verse 20. And through him was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. All that grandiose language because of the cross. All that grandiosity, all the lofty attributions, all come by the cross. There is no separating out the cross from the king. In other words, Christ humiliated on the cross is not a speed bump to his kingship. It is the central tenet. It is the premise of his kingdom and of his leadership and of his lordship. I don't think that we can overemphasize what this image of a king intentionally on a cross tells us. And I'm not sure about the the situation you grew up in, but uh, when it came to church, I grew up believing that the most important thing I could do was confess Christ as king or Jesus as Lord is another way of saying the same thing. In other words, the real decision to make was whether or not I said with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, right? Everything centered on that. We taught people how to get other people to say it. We spent every church service reminding ourselves of it and making sure you said it. And if you haven't, come on down and say it now. That was what was most important. I'm convinced now that confessing Christ's kingship is only half of the question that needs to be answered. It's not just a matter of confessing Christ's is king, but owning what kind of king Christ chose to be. It's not that we just choose one person as king instead of another. It's that we choose a different kind of king and different kind of kingdom altogether. I would argue that we, as faithful people, very often want to confess Christ as king without wanting to consider the kind of kingdom he established and we are called to help build. I meet with a group of pastors each week, uh, and this week, as we talked in this group, uh, one of my friends in the group, uh, Christopher, turned me on to an ancient piece of artwork that I had never remembered seeing before. Uh, and I'd hate to, I hate to say that I learned something from another pastor in town, but it actually you know, happened this week. And it, uh, it's this piece of artwork, and you can go ahead and show the first picture if you want. 
Uh, and this is uh, this artwork, if you look at it like in English, it's called the Gym of Augustus. And it's this beautiful little carving that's uh, a gym, and it's made in honor of Caesar Augustus. And it's right around the time of Jesus' life and death. And what it shows is a two-tiered world. You see the two halves there, the one above and below. And I know you probably can't see it super clearly from where you are, uh, but you can, you know, there's a Google image search away when you get home if you want to. Again, the gym of Augustus. So it shows a two-tiered world. Now let me talk you through these two tiers a little bit. If you zoom in on the top tier, it shows Caesar. And Caesar is the one in this one who's kind of leaning back, holding that staff and that chair. He's a little more reclined, and they're holding like the, the ring above his head, the crown above his head. Augustus is holding a staff. That staff in art represents military dominance and control and command. There's a woman who is crowning him. I won't try and say her name in Greek, but she personifies the inhabited world. So this is the whole world crowning him as king. Other places in there, people that can be identified and not identified, there's war horses, there's Neptune, there's the eagle of Jupiter, the god Jupiter. All these gods, all these important people, all their attention towards that king. See, everyone is facing him. Everyone is focused on him. Everyone is oriented around him. Their attention towards the most powerful king who almost kind of lounges a little bit in the comfort of what it means to be in charge of everything. The bottom, the world in which this top tier is built on, looks very differently. And if you look closely at the bottom, it's a very different kind of world. It's kind of a scarier place. It is the scene of a conquered people. You can see soldiers raising what looks like a cross, uh, over there on the left, you see that kind of stick heading this way, and you can see people lifting it up. Uh, upon initially looking at it, I thought it was a cross. It's not technically that. It's called uh, tropaeon. Uh, it looks like a cross. But what would happen is in Roman victories, when they would conquer an army, they would set up one of these tropaeons, and they would dress it up in their foe's armor. So they would dress it up almost to look like one of the soldiers that they just conquered, and then they would raise it up in front of everyone as a testament to who they would conquer. And a lot of times they would also shackle all the POWs to it and kind of force them to be humiliated underneath this symbol of their power. Uh, again, they would, they would uh, raise this thing up so everyone could see it. It has echoes of crucifixions, which of course serve the same kind of purpose in their society. Although that's not strictly what's happening here. There's not a person on that cross. There's clothing and armor on it. But as a humiliation of the enemy, it is a subjugation of those that the king overpowers with the sword. And perhaps to me, the most jarring image on the bottom here is the way that the king's soldiers can force their enemies to look at the symbol of their humiliation and defeat. And if you can look and see them grabbing the hair and kind of forcing them to go towards it and to look at it, right? This is the world's power. It's the ultimate sign of the world's power. It is a kingdom that is literally built on top of something else, and that thing that it is built upon is violence and domination. This is what the world looks like in Jesus' time. You could argue it still is to one degree or another. And the king sits safely above the mess. There is no violence, there is no pain, there is no struggle on the top tier, right? He's pampered, he's attended to, he's a focus of everyone, including the God's attention, and he is separated from all uh, the, the conquering, the humiliation, the pain. He sits above it. His enemies are suffering, are forced to endure the punishment for being against him, but he is above it all. And this, of course, 
is what it meant to be king. Why wouldn't you, why would you want to be king without this, right? When one talks of being king at the time of Jesus, this is the image they have in mind. This is why it's such an obvious joke uh, to the Roman soldiers who may seem like not the funniest and most clever of guys to us today, but that's why it's such an obvious joke to just write king of Jews above someone who's hanging on a cross. It's why the phrase is uttered a couple of times in our passage today. If you're king, if you're Messiah, save yourself, right? Save yourself. It keeps getting repeated because it's the only thing that makes sense in this world. There is no known world in which a king doesn't save himself. The king sits above it all, always. To be king means to avoid all the risk, all the danger, all the suffering that it's possible to avoid, to be immune to those things to whatever degree any person can be immune to them. Otherwise, what's the point of being the king? How do you make sense then of a world where the king chooses the lower tier instead of the top? We wear crosses around our necks, we tattoo them on our bodies, we hang them on the walls, but we still struggle with the implications of this idea. No one chooses the bottom tier, except Christ did. Philippians 2 tells us he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, right? Became obedient even unto death on a cross. How do you make sense of a world when the king chooses a lower tier instead of the top? I would argue that much of what still passes as quote-unquote Christian ideas or Christian theology is still far more Roman than it is Christian. It's more triumphant than it is sacrificial. It's more revenge fantasy than it is a chosen crucifixion. Even the way we tend to read the last part of today's scripture, the story of the two thieves, betrays us a little bit. I've always been taught that there's two thieves hanging by Jesus, right? One of them submits to Christ's lordship and is promised heaven. The other presumably uh, refuses to submit to his lordship and presumably goes to hell. That's what we always talked about, right? One of them went to be in heaven, one of them went to hell. Which one of the two thieves are you going to be? Come on down the aisle, and we'll make sure you're the right one. It's an interesting assumption to make, though, in this scripture, because it doesn't actually say that. And it's an interesting assumption to make in this passage that Christ, who so willingly dies for his enemy, Christ, who just finished forgiving everyone who's crucifying him, would then suddenly turn and condemn the thief on his one side because he didn't submit the way the other one. Again, the text doesn't tell us that happened. That's just always been the way I was told, right? That's just the way I automatically read it. And I automatically read that because that's my default assumption for how kings work. That's how the world works. I mean, Jesus just, forgiveness, uh, just finished forgiving those who are crucifying him. And we just assume that he's condemning one of the thieves, even though the text does not actually say it, because it's just the way the world works. So we bring it to Jesus' cross. We forget grace in two sentences of Scripture let alone when we're facing the cross ourselves in our lives, right? It's not just that Christ is king. It's what kind of king Christ is. It's not just that Christ has a kingdom that we are called to be a part of. It's what kind of kingdom. 
it is not a triumphant vision in the way we think of triumph. It is king, it is a king on a cross. So today, we celebrate the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the Christ to whom all things will be reconciled through his cross, always through his cross. We remember that we don't have the kind of king or kingdom to which we have become accustomed. We remember that we belong to a community of people that claim the bottom tier of the world as it is. A kingdom that endorses sacrificial love and love of enemy. A kingdom that chooses to shed its own blood before it calls for anyone else's. We belong to a peculiar group of folks who win by losing. We follow the kingdom of the cross. We follow that king. Not that kind of king, but that king. Let's pray.